open your Bible this morning to Revelation chapter 2, where we were last week, and we will try to finish this week what is, at least for me, a very engaging subject. Sometimes in studying this and trying to put all these pieces together in this message, it's almost like it's over my head. When Paul wrote about the love of God is past knowledge in Ephesians, he said it's beyond knowledge. The more you study this and you see the deeper emphasis that God puts on this subject, it is a very provoking, demanding subject to think about. In our text here, Revelation 2 and verse 1, he said, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, which in the last verse of chapter 1, he explains that. Verse 2, to this church, he says, and it could be to us individually, and it could be to us as a church. But he says this, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil. And you have tried them, or you put to the test those who say they are apostles and are not, and you found them to be liars. And you have borne or labored or carried the load. And you have patience, and for my name's sake you have labored, and you haven't fainted. Then he says, nevertheless, I have this against thee, because you have left your first love. This was a busy and active church like I think all churches would like to be noted. I don't know that there is a body called a church anywhere in America that would not like to have the reputation of being aggressive doers and promoters of their religion in some way, as long as it's Christian and not a cult. And... We admire those churches that are busy, and we admire those that make things and build things and do things and bring things in and so forth. And they seem to be a benefit to our society and so forth. And this church was one of those kind of churches. They did what churches are trying to do today, things that promote their diligence and their Christianity. And if Jesus had not have said what he said in verse 4, if he had not said that, they would have never known that they weren't really right with the Lord. And if you had come in and said, you know, with all your religious activity and all your religious pursuits and all your diligence and efforts, everything that you're doing, you're not right with the Lord. You know as well as I know that there would have been a war, you'd have been run out of town and been written up about and slandered. But Jesus said that. He said, I have this against you. And it's against you in the next verse in the sense that you are fallen. You're not standing before the Lord well. You're not really doing well. He said, you are fallen. And he said, unless you repent and go back and do the first works, I will remove, well, in this case, your candlestick, your light. 
Now, I don't know about you, but as I said last time, I read this and I think, how easy is it for us to strive after some religious credibility to exemplify what we should be and while we're doing it, not be right with the Lord? Our motivation is wrong. We're trying to do it for the wrong reasons. And God knows the hearts. We've read that for years, that God knows our hearts. And even in the third chapter of Revelation, in the seventh church, the Laodicean church, he says, you have a reputation. And I think God is especially addressing religion this morning to show us that being religious is not what God wants. Being something notable, something seen, something admired, something looked up to, you can do all of that without loving the Lord. That's the danger of all of this. That's the danger of Christianity. You can become, do, be admired, looked up to, have wonderful things written about you, and not be right with the Lord. And if that doesn't cause you to be still for a minute and think about things, because of that Laodicean church and what he said, you have a name that you're really somebody, but in the eyes of God who knows your hearts, you're miserable, you're wretched, you're naked, you're poor, and you're blind. There's nothing right about you. Can you imagine how that must have sounded to those people? With all that you're doing, there's nothing right or acceptable about any of it. What do you say in our church at Ephesus in verse 2 and verse 3? I know this, I know that. You've done these eight different traits. But he said you're not right. In fact, you're fallen. Now, if you're fallen, it means to fall like fall off of a cliff. And you're down somewhere looking up to where you were, but you're not there anymore. Now, you were once, you were there once, but then our title, the message, something has poisoned that original something you had that so attracted you to God, that drew you to God, and you wanted to serve him. You didn't care about buildings and money and jobs or school or sports. You just cared about how it is to walk with God. And something along the way, from when that started, as it kept going, something got poisoned. Something didn't continue on. And we've been warned about this all your life. The devil, like a roaring lion, does what? He goes about looking for people he can devour. He does it slowly. He's an enticer. He's a manipulator. He's a deceiver. He just simply twists things, distorts things, puts a renewed interest on. Uh, well, this is important too, Hamilton. And you begin to gravitate this way, and you let things slide spiritually, and you start getting poisoned. And we don't realize it because what we're doing is good. But what we're not doing is as though we're fallen because we're leaving out the most essential thing in our life, the most essential thing any Christian can have is his love for God. It must be so in him or in her that it motivates what we do, and it prevents us from doing what we should not do, our love for God. 
Again, Deuteronomy 13, the prophet prophesies something that comes to pass, but what he teaches and what he leads you to is away from God. He says, you don't follow people like that. I don't care how spectacular it is because the Lord is testing you whether or not you love him. The way in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, he said you should love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus quotes him in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. Jesus has the word strength with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might, all your being, all that you are capable of and who you are is to be dedicated to God, his cause, and his service, his way. And the rest of your life is spent pursuing that, is spent in pursuit of having his love manifested in your life and having all that he wants you to be coming about because of that. It's loving the Lord with all your heart. It's not loving church. It's not loving clothes and the world's system and the gaining entertainment. It's not that. It's the Lord. And everything you love is in the context of the Lord. A man loves his wife because it's the commandment of God to do that. Now, she ain't hard to love, or you wouldn't have married her. You wouldn't say, oh, man, i got to live with her. No, you married her because you loved her. She married me because she loves me. We don't always perform well, but love always performs. And I don't deserve the love that I've gotten in my life. I don't, but I got it anyway because the supreme definition of love is commitment. God so loved the world that he committed his own son and his death for the salvation of those whom he had appointed to salvation. And he carried it through. And not only did he commit himself to saving people, he's also committed himself to the bringing of those people to his home. He that started a good work will what? Finish it. This is the love of God. This is what it does. The focus that God has on this earth is not how beautiful the earth is. It's the people on it. When he takes them off of this earth, this earth's going to be blown up in a sense. But you're the only reason that God is favorable to this earth because he loves you. He loves us far more than I suspect. If we're serious, then we have shown our love for him. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these who are like you? These are your friends. These are the only people you've ever known. You all run around together. You care about each other. You talk all the time. They're like you. Do you love them more than you love me? Whom you don't know, I'm not even like you. I look like you, but I'm not like you. Do you love me more than them? You know what he said? Jesus said, are you committed to me more than you are to them? In my own words, I would say that Peter said, no. No, I've already proven by the mistakes I made before you were crucified. I've already proven that I don't love you sacrificially. I'm not going to lay down my life for you because I value my life more than our relationship. I mean, all my buddies would say, well, you know, after all, let's don't be a fool about this. I mean, Jesus might want us to... And, no, I survive. I'm more concerned about me and my ways or my money and my home, my children, my education, my tomorrows. I'm more concerned about me than I am you. But uh, Jesus, I feel ill you. 
I love you in the sense that I really like being around you and I really look forward to this. But I haven't been willing to give you all of me, no. And he was honest, and Jesus used him because in the end, I think Peter came to the place where his whole life was about Jesus Christ. Everything was Jesus. In the community, we look like freaks of nature because we're just Jesus-minded. Jesus said, you'll be hated of all men. There's got to be a reason why good people hate us. It's because something about we're just overloaded with Jesus. Everything is Christ. Everything is just, I need the oh, I need the every day is like that. He's all I need, and I want that to be my testimony. So you pursue that. The reason you pursue it is because you love him. Now, last week we said this. This love that Jesus demands, this love that Jesus, let me put it this way, the love that Jesus requires from you and me is a love that is total, complete, surrendered. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he said, If a man loves father or mother more than me, he is not worthy of me. He is not worthy of me. If you put your children first, you don't love the Lord. You're not worthy of him. If you put your job and its demands and all the time you got to spend, whatever you put before God is what you're devoted to. That's what you're serving. Now, we all have to work. I'm not saying we don't work. God made work for us to live by, but some people get so wrapped up in it, become so in pursuit of making a lot of money, of being somebody and rich and famous or whatever it is, that church becomes secondary to this. And he said, you've left your first love. You have fallen from the Lord. You're pursuing your ways, yourself, your goals, your fame, your glory, your admiration of people. You're pursuing that, and you might even get it because you're real aggressive but you have turned away from the Lord. Now, you sing the songs. You go to church. You do all of that. We'll get to that in a minute. You do all the right things like these folks were doing. But Jesus said, I know your hearts, and you've turned away from me because I'm not the reason you're doing this. You like what you're doing. You like the church you're in. You like the atmosphere. You like the way we conduct our affairs. We like the way we do things. We like it our way, and the reason we do it this way is because we like it. Jesus said, you know, you shouldn't omit certain things to the Pharisees. Sure, you do a lot of things right, you Pharisees, but he said, you've omitted the weight of your matters of the law because it doesn't please you. And those two words, comfort and happiness, comes back to haunt people because when your life is all about being comfortable, being happy, and having it, finally got it, your life is all about you and it's not about him. So he said, if you love anybody more than me, you're not worthy of me. In fact, he said in being a disciple, Luke chapter 14, verse 27, he said, if any man comes after me, you know, I'm going to pursue the Lord. This is the way we start. And along the way, he is unwilling to love me more than his parents, his brothers, his sisters, his friends, even his own life, your own life. The thing we treasure so highly and try to preserve, if you put your own life before God, then you can't be his disciple. Now, we read that quickly and move on to something else. But think about it this morning, all of you. 
When Jesus comes, may we be guilty of having at least declared this portion of the word to you. That love looms as the great subject in the Bible. The only thing that can bring forth things that are acceptable to God is love, including your faith. We'll get to that in a moment, too. Everything has to be about love. I'm doing this because I love the Lord. I'm claiming my healing because God provided it, and I want it because he gave it, and it pleases him for me to have it. I pray for prosperity and getting out of debt and be free from all that stuff because that's what he said in his word. He provided that for me, showed it to me. I want that because I know that pleases him for me to be what he wants me to be. So if that's truly the reason I want all of this, then I'm doing it God's way, and it'll work, and it has worked. That should be all of our testimony. And when people tell me so-and-so, boy, they love the Lord, I think, you know, they might. But that's a package when you say, oh, boy, those people love the Lord so much. Sometimes I think when I hear that, there's two verses in John 14, verse 21 and 23. Jesus said, if a man loves me, he will keep my word. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't hope they don't preach about that this week. I hope they don't have to deal with that. If a man loves me, he'll keep my word. He'll search out to truth because he wants to know it. And when he finds it, whatever it costs him, he'll do it because that's what God wants of him. And I belong to God. And I want to serve him. I put him before my wife, my family, you all. You got to say it that way. That's what you want to be like. That's what you want him to see and so forth. Now, I asked you the question last week, where does this love come from? It comes from God. Without him, you couldn't have it. The Bible said in 1 John 4, we love him because we are able to love God right because what? He first loved us. So think of it. When God loved me, when he expressly singled me out for his divine affection, comfort, care, and compassion, when he came to me like that, it's supposed to do a work in you that not only humbles you, but makes you see something you've never seen before. That nobody, not even your mother, loves you like God. And you begin to realize what all he's done and what he did for you. And that while you were a trashy sinner, Jesus died for you. Laid his life down for the likes of us. And he begins to reveal that to you and shows that to you. And we begin to love back. We begin to pray more earnestly. When we sing songs, sometimes our eyes go shut. There's emotion in it now. There's a response from us as best we know how. My heart is touched by all of this. And dear God, this is how I feel. Now, I don't understand all of it, but I know what I feel. And you begin to treat God with respect and compassion yourself. And you sing, and then you read. And when you begin to read the Bible, you see things that you could never see unless God showed it to you. And he showed it to you for a reason. He wants you to deal with it. He wants you to think about it. He wants you to put that into your heart and let that word become life to your flesh. This is how he leads us and cares for us. We can go nowhere in this world. We can amount to nothing without this. Nothing. 
We can be religious our whole life, pride ourselves in having the biggest, the best, the brightest, the most admired, wrote 40 books and had three degrees. For what? Have you ever heard the word vanity? It was all for nothing. Unless the promotion of all of this was, going back to our text, a love for God. And along the way, we have to make sure that we're not poisoned, that something doesn't get in there, change our mind, change our opinion, change our direction, alter us just a little bit, get us a little bit off track until we start doing things another way. Because there is a way that seems right unto man. But what did God say about it? Didn't he say it's the way of death? Think about it. It seems right to the mass. We're all involved in it because we like it. It's so right. We sing, we give, we praise, we preach, and we help, and we go to the fields, and we feel so good about it. I know it's not exactly what the Bible says, but and the Bible says it's a way of death. How can this be? Because when it comes right down to it, God will be master over your life, or you have no master except yourself. He will either be in total charge, or he will not be in charge. And if we want to wander away, he'll let us wander away. If we want to do it our way, he won't stop you, not all of us. But at some point in the rest of all y'all's lives, and you out there too who's watching this, we're going to have to sit down, be real still, and read this and ask ourselves the question, is this talking to me? Am I who he's talking to in verse 4? You've left your first love, Hamilton, Shelbyville, or whoever. You see, love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. Remember that in 1 John 4? Have I gotten away from that? Have I only memorized the verse of Scripture? Am I familiar with what the Bible says, but not living this? Have I become religiously Christian, but not devoted, dedicated, or committed to the Lord to live his way? Now, question is, back to what gets us off track, how is love poisoned? How can such a dynamic thing from God be poisoned or tainted or impregnated with something that causes a decline or ruin? How can love that comes from God to us, which obviously it's our responsibility to do something with it, isn't it? Because if it wasn't, we couldn't fall. We couldn't be fallen. So when it comes, it's something there for us to deal with. So what is it along the way of our busy, busy lives that causes us to become poisoned? Because you see, when love does grow cold, remember Matthew 24 in the last days? Jesus gives us as a signal to the last day something you need to be aware of. This is what he told his disciples. Matthew 24 Let's just begin in verse 4. Jesus said, Take heed that no man deceive you or mislead you. Many will come in my name saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. 
That's happening today. They may not say that they're Christ, but they say, God sent me. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled. All of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Just read the paper or watch the news. You'll see it. And verse 80 said, all of this is just the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. They're going to find you out. There are going to be laws passed. There's going to be something going to happen, something. They shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. And then many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. I'm not going to die for that. Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Notice this, verse 12, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Couldn't be love of the world. The world doesn't know how to love. The world knows how to lust, but the world doesn't know how to love. He's talking here about church folks. And because iniquity shall abound. I've always thought of iniquity in one of those words for sin, which has to do with the domination of self in the life. You know, iniquity is translated lawlessness too. You're a law until yourself. You see it your way. You do it your way. You hear it all the time. It's my body. Why can't I do with my body what I want to do with my body? Who has a right to tell me what I should do? I have as much a right. That type of me stuff. It's in the last days more today than it's ever been. He said, and because iniquity shall abound, he said, the love of many shall wax cold. It wasn't always cold. It didn't used to be cold, but this iniquitous age will cause it to wax cold. I think people get fed up. This crazy world, look at this, look at that, look at how they dress, look at what they do. All these kids being born out of wedlock and living together and all the homosexual activity and everybody's getting hardened to it. It's the last days. It's the last days. And because of the iniquity abounding in the world, didn't Paul write about iniquity? Men shall be heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And they'll be this and they'll be that. Nobody is kind and gentle anymore. Everybody who wants to be cool has to be mean-looking. You want to dress mean, look mean, act mean. Or like some lusty stallion if you want to be cool. Everything that just says that there is no love in this person. There isn't any. And when Christians want to taste and see about that stuff, the same thing that happened to the world happens to them. They fall from where they were. And unless somebody tells us, unless by divine grace we're led to read this and be bothered by it, we'll be judged like they are. But he said, the love of many shall wax cold. Look at verse 13. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then, then, then you and I will know that the end is coming. When the gospel is preached in all the world, an intense covering of this globe with the gospel, more than it's ever been. Now, I believe there are some whose love is poison because they were disappointed in their Christian pursuits about the things that didn't work. 
I claimed the 91st Psalm and it didn't work. And I claimed a promise in Psalm 37, the angels are going to watch over me or whatever the verse you might have claimed and had a wreck and so-and-so was killed or there was an accident, somebody was impaired, now I got a bill I can't pay and then my wife ran off with the preacher and the preacher ran off with the piano player and all the things that so greatly disappoint people cause people to draw back and say things like, well, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want to be part of it. That is a whole lot of what Christianity is all about, but that's not what God is all about. See, if you get your eyes on Jesus, you know these things are going to happen. There must be divisions among you and contentions, Paul wrote, among you. You know why? So that those who are approved will be known. You'll see those who are approved because they don't get caught up in that stuff. Something is bigger in their life than either trying to prove themselves, make a name for themselves, be a hero, or be right. They just let Jesus be the ruler of their life. That's who they love. They're going to lose something here. They take you to court and sue you for this. You just you give them whatever they want. You know why you do that? One reason. There's only one reason why you do that because it said, that's what he said. The only reason you turn your cheek when somebody you wouldn't particularly like slaps you is because Jesus wants you to. The only reason you do a lot of things that you do that the world thinks you're nuts for letting people do that to you is because it's in obedience to the commands of Jesus. Either he rules our lives or he doesn't. Either he is Lord in control of our life or he isn't. I don't care what you sing. It doesn't matter what any of us sing. Either our lives become a city on a hill making one sound, promoting one Christ, one Lord, not a church, but a Savior. Or we're just religious people. Somebody treated you wrong. Somebody got your parking spot, got your seat, whatever, and you backed off. You backed off. You got disappointed. You got weary. Or if you're religious and you're just trying to find a nice church where you can feel good at it, you got bored. Because religious people are very easy to bore. They're very tolerant. Christians are very tolerant. You know, they get bored easy. They just don't have a lot of what it takes, I think, to be unbored, but they are. They're just religious. They're full of duty. I'll tell you what, I'm going to, in this church, I'm going to make a difference in this church, and I'm going to, and I'm going, and I'm going to begin to help and give and do and so forth. Because that's what religions requires of you. Nothing wrong with doing it if you love the Lord. But sometimes uh, God's way is a little different than the way man does it. Man promotes a church. Man promotes what others can see. He likes to do things that the community can see, visible things. But what God does is change the heart, and you can't always see that. And your heart's being changed. You're being transformed into a new creature, but nobody can see you being busy or something, and they wonder, what's wrong with him? If you really love the Lord, you'd be out here doing something. If you really love the Lord, you'd go with me on a mission field. If you really love the Lord, you would give. If you really love the Lord, you would help. And they say it that way, but most of the time, what you love is what you're doing, not the Lord. 
Because when you're done with it, you like to tell people you need to come to our church and look at our programs, and we have, as though, and it is yours. You put your life into it. And yet in the end, what happened to all those temples that were built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? Two of them. Solomon's Temple and Herod's Temple. Those two magnificent things were, with all that gold and all of that, what happened to both of them when the people that inhabited them were corrupted by sin? What happened to them? They threw them over the side. They were destroyed. You think God cares about gold? I mean, as far as a big loss? All those golden shields that Solomon made that were carried off? Or all those animals that were sacrificed? That's not what God wants. God wants hearts. God wants hearts. He wants your life. He wants your dedication, your devotion. He wants himself to be the focus of your life. And the promise is magnificent. Jesus said, if you will seek first in your life his kingdom, his reign, his rule, if you will seek first his kingdom, all these things that the world is living for and don't ever really get, he said, your father will give it to you. You seek first the kingdom, and you get everything that you wanted. You find out what you want, and then he'll give it to you with peace and joy. God adds no sorrow to what he gives on his terms. You get to enjoy it. If you take that step and you let Jesus be what he said, and you let what he puts into you do the work in you that wants to go back towards him, to flow out unto him like a river of living water. It just transforms your thinking, your mind, your life, your tomorrows. Everything changes. You get away from this religious, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What we got to do something? Got to do, then let's fight. It ain't my family. You get away from all of that stuff because that's not what the focus of your life is. Your life is all about Jesus. The early church did so well when they were all together in one accord on the day of Pentecost. And there for a while after that, as so often happens in religious movements, they were sold together. If anybody had a need, whoever had something sold it. I don't care about all the stuff I've accumulated. What's important is in what way can we please the Lord? And then they got to fighting, wanting to argue, and it all slowed down and finally quit. Because they fell from something they started with and they fell away to something that God no longer honored. Turn to Isaiah, would you please? Isaiah chapter 1. Remember Jesus said, I have somewhat against you. Y'all remember that in the Bible? Isn't that somewhere in the Bible? Yes. I have somewhat against you. Can you imagine? I still think about that. I have somewhat against you. I mean, it'd be like coming to the biggest church in the state on its finest day, in its prettiest hour. I'm not against nice things, trust me. 
I have nice things, and I'm for nice things. I like to drive nice things and have nice things and eat nice things and sleep in nice places. <laughs> I do. God has given me all of that and the desires of my heart about that so that what I have, I don't need anything better. Okay, I'm at peace. Can you imagine being in the prettiest place, the biggest place, the most magnificent, expensive place that's Christian? Can you imagine walking in and Jesus looking at it in his finest hour? And on this day, all the men shaved, combed their hair, and even, even wore tie, whatever those things are. They wore one of them. And they were together one morning, and Jesus comes in and says, you are quite... Uh, Boy, nobody in this town is more busy than you are. You spent how many millions of dollars helping these and going, that's good, nothing wrong with this. But he said, you know what? I have something against you. You folks, you folks have left your first love. Because they would define love as works. I mean, if you love, you do. They would have defined what they're doing as love in action. And they would have been greatly offended at you saying that, just like we would be if he walked into this, let me call it these humble surroundings, adequate humble surroundings, and came in here and said, Shelbyville Christian Assembly, 31 years, I have something really against you. You've left your first love. You were one time somewhere, and you have fallen away. You've let go of something, and you're not there anymore. Now, you're still busy. You still do all of this, but you've left your first love. Would you be offended? What if he came up to you personally? What if I came up to you personally, privately, and I said, you know what? I mean, who can I pick on? Caleb don't mind. I said, Caleb? Uh, you know, I, I admire your whatever, your attendance and effort and trying, and you're always helping and leading and doing good. Never hear anything bad about you. Maybe driving too fast, but I don't hear anything else about you, know. <laughs> I haven't too much of that. But anyway. <laughs> but Caleb, the Lord told me that, that you've fallen, that uh, you've left your first love. You don't love God like you once did. That in that sense, you're fallen, and if you don't repent and go back where you fell and do the first works, you won't make it. Would that sober him up if this was from God? Would it sober you up if I said to any of you? I better be careful who I say because somebody might say something back. I said, Mrs. Wilder, she'd probably just start crying and say, I need to get right then. I did, I'm glad you told me that because, you know, I have been slipping. I have noticed in the last few years, I'm not as what as I used to be. Now, I'm older now, and I, my feet don't get as high off the ground as they used to. I've noticed that I'm a little less interested than I used to be. I don't read as much as I used to. I don't pray as much. I don't seek God for things. like I, you don't use my faith like I used to. Well, then you're fallen. We'll call it backslidden, sliding back off the hill, <laughs> laying upside down. You're falling from grace. 
God's not busy with grace in your life anymore. You don't even know it because you become religious and stagnant and you're just sort of uh, existing and uh, that's all there is. And, and maybe so, maybe this is true. When you go to church, you really don't expect anything to happen because you've fallen. You're not looking forward for God saying something that you need to hear because it's just like you've, you've turned away from something has come into our lives. It might have been our kids in school. It might have been an accident, a mistake. It might have been some sin of some sort, some horrible sin. Maybe it was a divorce or maybe it was who knows what. Got cheated. We just kind of turned away. We just backed off. We're still here because it's our duty. I'm not here because I love Jesus. I'm here because I've... I like my friends here, and I'm here because I think a man ought to go to church. I think a person ought to go to church. I think church is where we ought to be. Good people go to church. Well, what about loving Jesus? Well, that's just automatic, isn't it? Apparently not. Look at Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 4. Oh, sinful nation. Now, these are God's chosen specific people. Ah, oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. There's that word. A seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, and they've gone away backwards. What we've been talking about is defined there. Nobody would like to be called ah, oh, sinful nation. But look in verse 11. This is what he said to their religious practices, their religious exercises. This is how we do it. He said, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who's required this at your hand to tread my course? Who told you to come in here and do all of that? You. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. And your new moons and your Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meetings, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul Hateth. They are a trouble to me. I am weary to bear them. Would God ever, ever feel like that today about modern religion? Do you think about it? This is the way he felt about his own people who were practicing the law. The law said about the solemn feast and the feast days and the males going to Jerusalem every year and the, what they do and the Sabbath day, they practiced that. They sacrificed animals like the law said. But God said, I don't want any of this from you. Why? Verse 4, sinful nation, a nation of evildoers laden with iniquity. It's not good. Look at chapter 29 and verse 13. You've been here before in the past. Wherefore the Lord saith, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me. Is that right to do that? Somebody help me now. Is it not right to honor God with your lips? Is it not right to draw near? 
And they were doing it. These people were doing what God said, and they were pleased with themselves for doing it. And God said, but you have removed your heart far from me, and your respect and reverence toward me is taught by what men have taught you and not what I have taught you. That, folks, is modern-day denominational religion. It's people who are systematized, integrated into a system, learning the routines and the ways of the system, becoming good Methababy Presbycostals, learning how we do it, doing it that way, being quite happy with it, voting when you have to vote, and whatever when you have to whatever. This is what he said. I'm not saying this. He said this. He said, you don't have a heart for God. You have a heart for yourself. You like what you do. You derive personal pleasure from it. You feel good about it, and you stand before God like you're really important to him. And God says, your heart's not right with me. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your money. I don't want anything you bring because you're not giving it as unto me. It's not from your heart. You're supporting a church. The church has a need. You put money in the basket because, well, the church has a need. That's not why you give. You give because it belongs to God. He said, give it. It's the way he said to give. God loves a cheerful giver, not a grudging giver. And yet giving is, oh, that's such a difficult subject. People get so offended when you talk about giving, and we talk about it every week. Hardly. But it's just the nature of religious people. You are bound into a system that controls you, and you cannot get out of it. You're bound. I was born in a Baptist hospital by a Baptist minister in a Baptist church. I was born in a Presbyterian hospital, born in a Pentecostal hospital. I don't know where that is, but you're part of a system. There are good people in all the systems. Every system says good things. And they did that in Ephesians, didn't they? They did good things, but not with their heart in reverence and love for God. It wasn't for his kingdom. It was for their own. Go to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. Talk about selfish piety. Listen to this one. Verse 1. Cry aloud. Who's he talking to? Isaiah. Today he would be talking to preachers, the few who were willing to do this. Cry aloud. Spare not. Boy, she's going to be offended if I say that. Boy, he might not come back if I say that. Spare not. Did you hear me? Don't say it too loud. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet. And do what? And show my people their transgressions in the house of Jacob or Israel their sins. Is this the command of ministry? It was in this particular case. This Situation not true everywhere, but in this particular place with God's people in Isaiah's time, it was. He said, hey, I called you with a message. I anointed you to go speak to my people. These are my sheep. I'll have to judge every one of them, and they're all going to die unless they get their eyes open. Now, I'm going to send you as an eye opener. Some will receive you, some won't. 
Some will get their eyes open and some won't. The ones that do and repent, I'll spare them. All the rest of them will perish. You read that in Ezekiel 18, don't you? So he said, you go cry aloud. You spare not. Don't you court any man's favor. Don't you try to make a name for yourself or get rich off my people. You just go to them and you tell them the truth. I'll give you the truth. You tell them. Don't you hold it back. You're going to lose some. You're going to gain some. But you tell them. And if you won't, I'll get somebody else. What's the next verse say? Who's he talking to? Look at verse 2. How can it be that verse 1 links with verse 2? Yet they, the one I want you to cry aloud and declare their sin, they seek me every day. They delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Why would you cry aloud to people like that? Because the prophet can only see what they do. God sees the heart. How many of you know that uh, somebody could come here and act very religious? And as far as you know, they are. And yet they could be an adulterous swindler. They've come along through the years. You can't always tell a book by the cover. But when God fans through there and you begin to see some things, the epistle gets read and you begin to see what the nature of that person really is. That's why you don't accept anybody because they come in here and say, I'm a prophet of God. How do we know who you are? Whose wife are you with? Who says you're a prophet? Based on what? Where'd you come from? Who's your pastor? Who acknowledges you as a pastor? Who knows your reputation? Or you're just a stranger off the street saying, I'm a prophet of God. I don't accept you. If you are a prophet of God, eventually we will all know it. Then you could have something to say, but don't come in here as a stranger. That's why when you're sent out from a church, it's important to be sent. So that if anybody does want to know who you are, they can call and we can tell them. Oh, we kicked him out. No, we sent him out. He's a good man, good standing. There's just something about the way it ought to be as opposed to the way it is today. But anyway... He said, yet these people seek me every day. They delight to know my way. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take great delight in approaching to God. Why in the world would you call those people sinful? Because their hearts are not right. You know what this book goes on to tell us? Because the way they treated each other. How about 1 Corinthians at the Lord's table? Paul didn't write, oh, I commend you for what you do. He said, I commend you not. You come behind in no gift. Remember that? you got all the gifts in this church. you got prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers. All the power gifts work here. Healing, deliverance, casting out of demons or discerning of spirits. And all the healing gifts and all the verbal, the vocal gifts, they're all operating here. And you know what he said to them? He said, you're just a bunch of babies. You're a bunch of babies. You know what he said to the Hebrew church after all that lengthy letter he wrote, that deep stuff? He said, I can't preach what I need to preach to you because you can't handle it. You're tired of listening. You're dull of hearing. Listen to me, all of you. How can this happen to a church? Or 
leave the church out. How can that happen to me? After 40 years, how can it happen? After one year, after 10 years, how can it happen? Because of this, when your connection with your devotion to God gives way to anything else, then almost anything else can replace him, and you get proud of that. He said, you cry aloud to these people. Selfish piety. Look at us. Let me show you some verse two. They're very earnest people. Churches ought to be earnest. You should be earnest. They were earnest in their study. Verse two, he said, they seek me daily. They were earnest in their prayer. He said, they ask of me the ordinances of justice and so forth. In verse three, he talks about fasting. He said, they were earnest in their self-sacrifice. We've afflicted our soul, which is a word for fasting. We've afflicted our souls, and we have borne ourselves before you, and we have sought you at your altar and cried out to you, but you're not listening to us. This is not working. I've had that said to me by people here through the years. It doesn't work. Well, there's reasons this morning why a lot of things don't work, and it's because of the motivation of why people are seeking Listen to it. He said, you fast for strife and debate. Doesn't he say that in verse 4? Your fasting is not because you want to afflict your soul before the Lord so you can hear from God and just be still and be quiet. Concentrate, think about the Lord, maybe read his word and just be still before God. Spend that time with the Lord. You're fasting your soul. You're not going to eat. I'm not going to do that. I, wanna, I just want to spend time with God. He said, no, your fast, thinking that your anointing of memorization of quoting the Bible will be better and stronger than you could outquote these other people. Here's what one commentator said about that verse. He said, it would seem that the Israelites were divided into religious parties or factions, sound like the church today, or what I've seen the last 25 years ago, what I saw happening. They were divided into religious factions or parties, some professing to be more orthodox than others, more faith, more narrow. I remember a guy saying one time, I'm more narrow than anybody here. Is that your claim to fame? You know what I can tell you today, this few years later? It did you no good. It did you no good. Because your life is far worse now than it ever was. So much for pride. There was rivalry, therefore, in their devotion. One tried to excel the other. Our church, our preacher... We don't have this. We don't go there. We don't do that. We don't watch that. You still got a trashy vision? You still got a television set in your house? Don't you know that thing is trashy? Can I say something? Yes. Do you have a computer? What? I said, do you have a computer? You know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Do you have a computer? Well, yeah, everybody's got one. Let me tell you something. The trash on a computer, what can be found through that thing is 50,000 times worse than what's on a television set. I'm not saying you ought to have a TV set. 
Somebody asked me once, why did I get rid of the one I had? I think if I had not have gotten rid of it, I might not have been able to survive this day. There was a time in which there were so many policemen in the church, they'd kind of go around and look at it, and they didn't do this, but it's like they'd look in the window. You see anything in there? You see anything? You see anything in there? Has he got one down? Uh-oh. Go look at his closet. I bet it's up in the attic. That's where the tree is. <laughs> Then one time I found myself in order to watch it, go to somebody's house to watch a ball game. And I thought, it just occurred to me one day, talk about hypocritical conviction. I thought, you know what? Everybody got rid of this thing because it's got teeth and it kills everybody that watches. If you watch it, you're going to hell. And here I am watching a ball game, quite enjoying it. And then finding myself, rebuking it or another. You know, something ain't right here. I need to go back and examine my motives. Did I do it because of fear of man or did I do it because of obedience to God? I think it was more the fear of man. It doesn't mean that you have to be controlled by that stuff. And as far as the trashiness, let me tell you something. There's far more educational value to television today than there ever has been. And there's far more smut than there ever has been. It just depends on where you are with your heart, what you tolerate yourself. Getting rid of something doesn't mean you don't lust for things. You can gouge your eyes out and still lust. It's all about your heart, where your heart is. Now, go to Matthew 7. We're about to close. We're coming down the home stretch here. Haven't got to faith yet, and that might take a while, but we won't linger too terribly long. Matthew 7, talk about religion and religious practices. Why no gifts? We mentioned that the other day. Why no gifts and why won't this happen? Listen to this, Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus said, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. But shouldn't we say, Lord, Lord? But saying it doesn't mean that you're going to make it to the kingdom because it doesn't mean that you mean it. Lord, Lord. With their words, they do honor me, Isaiah said. All right. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, that's the person that loves the Lord. Now, in light of that, verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have we not cast out devils in thy name, done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. We never had a personal connection. Your life wasn't about me. Your life was about taking what I said and using it for yourself. I never knew you. Now, let me ask you a question. Can a man's faith work the wrong way? I mean, work. Get results. Turn to Galatians 5 and look at verse 6. Paul was talking in Galatians 5 about circumcision, uncircumcision, as far as it being a a benefit religiously or spiritually, and it's not. All Jewish boys are circumcised, so some of the Jewish people said, well, all Gentiles that come to the Lord should be circumcised also. Paul said that's meaningless. That means nothing. He said the only thing that really matters is whether or not you have faith and you're using it. Without faith, it's what? Possible to please God. 
We walk by faith and not by sight and so on and so on and many, 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 many more verses. But notice he said this specifically about faith in Galatians 5. Is it verse 6? It's not circumcision or uncircumcision that means anything, but one thing does. Faith that worketh, that operateth, that is brought about by love. Again, this word love has to do with our devotion to God. I use my faith because this is how I please you. Yes, I benefit from it because the using of my faith brings benefits to me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And the thing that brings them to you is your faith. Be not slothful, but followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So faith is what does that. But it only benefits when the reason for living by faith is to please God. Why do you want out of debt? Because it pleased God to have no master over my life but God and so forth. Whatever you want to say. However you want to say that. I want to be healed. Notice what he said. He said, the only thing that benefits you is faith that works by love. And I ask you the question, can faith work without love? Can you get results without operating in love? All right, put your finger right there where you are and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I asked you the question, can faith operate without love? Would God honor the exercise of a man's faith even though his faith is not directed by his love for God? Could you lay hands on the sick and they recover? Could that work without loving God? Well, this is where the grave danger lies in the church that people better pay attention to because this is what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, well, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 13 and 1, he said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I become sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. Can I speak in the tongues of men and angels? Listen to it. An angelic tongue is supernatural. Unless you run around with angels. So you can't. Well, look at verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Wow. And though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not love. What does it say? But it can remove mountains. There, I think there's a lot of people who have learned techniques and ways, who started out well and saw the benefit of playing this game. And they become in and they can preach certain things, certain ways with such emphasis that the dullest person in the room could be inspired by it. And you know God honors his word. Now, the man preaching has an angle here, but the people sitting there don't know that. They really get inspired. Oh, man, praise God, yes. And if you believe this morning, God will touch your heart. If you come forward, God will heal you. And they believe that. They believe it. And they get up and they come forward, and he lays hands on them, and God honors their faith. And they got healed. Now, he gets all the, whoo, hoo, hoo. 
but it wasn't him. He didn't lay hands on that person because he loved Jesus. He loved that money he's going to get. He's a corrupter, but it worked. He prophesies something. God gives him something. And the prophecy ministers to a person, meets a person's need. And a person benefits and, oh, God, I thank you. They walk out. Life changes for them because God gave a word to somebody through this guy. Wouldn't call him false. He's preaching the truth, but he's not preaching it out of love for God, is he? He's certainly not preaching it because he loves his people. A lot of pastors, you know this. I don't have to say this. You know that there's a lot of pastors who pastor churches not because they love people. They love their job. And if they can do well enough here, they'll promote themselves to a better job and a bigger job. Thanks. You're just people that are used to promote things, whether it's a church or personality. People follow people. They compare other people with their man. How we survived years ago, I don't know. But it troubles me now that we can have come this far not have our hearts right. After all these years, we just sort of settled back into our middle age comfort and let it slide. But your faith can operate, folks, without you loving Jesus. How else would they say, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Did we not cast out demons in thy name? Didn't we do great miracles and wonders and works? And Jesus said, what? I never knew you. So this message of faith that we talk about has to be tempered with this. You can't preach everything you know in one sermon, but you have to temper that message of faith with this. Whatever you do, if you want God to promote it, accept it, and benefit you for it, do it as unto the Lord. Whether you're married to a man that's not as lovable as he used to be, or a woman that's not as lovable as she used to be, or there's a lot more of her now, whatever you complain is, you love her because you love God. You love him because you love God. Him don't deserve it. Her don't deserve it, but he does. And so you continue to manifest to your mate the love that God gave you for her in spite of, regardless of, or no matter what. And the love you're living is the love that God gave. The faith you have, I'm claiming a new this or new that. Why are you doing this? Because I look good in that. That's not exactly the right reason, and chances are that's why a lot of people's faith isn't working. You're consuming it on yourself. It's not the right reason. It's not, is this what God would be pleased with for me to have? How about a new car? Is that right or wrong? It would be right if you had one. What if you prayed, Lord, I'm asking you for direction on a a new car. Well, the one you got is pretty nice. I know it's nice. I didn't say I like to have a nicer than nice, nice. If your heart is right and you have the freedom to do that, fine. Everybody else says, praise the Lord. Faith is a big issue, folks, but it only compliments you before the Lord if it's faith that works by love. Now, in closing, 
in closing, here's what Jesus said to that church in Ephesus. He said, I know your works. I know your labors. You don't faint. You bear up. You can't stand those that are evil and those that say they're apostles. You put them to the test and you found them to be liars. You're diligent people. You're earnest people. But I have this against you. You have left and fallen from your first love. Your first love you first experienced when you first got saved because that was the time that divine love came. You didn't care about the building. How many of you know back in those days you didn't care whose house you met in, whose basement or under what tent? Just as long as we got together and sang and fellowshiped and prayed. I don't mean we sat around praying all the time. We prayed, talked, discussed, held hands and did this a lot and prayed together a lot. Saw legs grow a lot. Saw several miracles. And the thrill of it all. I don't want to mislead you about the old days and tell you that we were just, our eyes were all bugged out all the time, <laughs> running around like that. We weren't. But there was something, listen to me, and this is the truth. There was something fresh and new just about every day. It was like this is a new day, praise God. Looking for a hitchhiker so he could witness to people, stuff like that. Today, you might not let them out. They might let you out. But anyway, Jesus said, remember, he said, go back and do the first works. Verse 2. Now, I'm reading from a little different translation here, but it'll read pretty close. Jesus said, do the first works, all right? Go and proclaim in the hearing of Shelbyville Christian Assembly. Thus saith the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth when you were younger. Your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land that's not sown. It was a howling, dry wilderness. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't anything of abundance or prosperity. But you did not care. You had Jesus. You had clothes to wear and you were happy. And you got up in the morning, did your work, and you went and fellowshiped in the evening if that was available, and you were happy. You looked forward just to going to a Sunday morning meeting in the First Christian Church in Charlestown, Indiana, at 244 Harrison Street on the corner of Water and Harrison Street there in town. You looked forward just to going there to see everybody again. The Lord's showing you anything new. And you get in the church, and you just waited for the preacher. You knew he was going to say something good. Just waited for a chance to go, Amen. Just want to be a part of this. Now, you weren't in Charlestown, so you couldn't remember that, but you remember those of you that started, if you started, if you started. See, the problem is a lot of you were born into this. A lot of you sitting here this morning were just born. We all were when you were when you first came in the world. Now here you are with whiskers on your face, an adult. Hard to relate to this exuberance of the early life. But for some of us, who were just gross sinners, we had that. 
And I can tell you this standing here this morning as we get ready to go. A lot of people have gotten away from it. But Jesus said, remember from whence you have fallen and repent. Turn around. Repent. Go back and do the first things that you did. For that's when your life was the happiest, most productive, and most wonderful. You shouted in a meeting, didn't you? How many of you have shouted in a meeting? None of you. Well, I'm sure I heard somebody years ago shout. Does it ever bother you sitting here this morning as we close? I'm done. And now I get to talk to you for a minute. Does it ever bother you that there has been a noticeable, if it's true, if this is true, a noticeable decline in your personal life and your relationship to Jesus? Have you noticed it? We've all noticed, if we've been here for 15 years, there's been a decline in the whole atmosphere as far as praise is concerned. Something, some kind of a poison got in somebody somewhere. Can we do anything about this? Is there anything that we can do about it? No, we're just going to be, yes, we can. What Jesus say to do? Repent and go back and do what? The first works. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, as you minister to us this morning, we receive it. We receive whatever we need, whatever it takes. We don't know what you know. And you know us better than we know ourselves. There is nothing hidden from you. Scripture says you know the very thoughts, the intentions, and the motivations of our hearts. You know what we're thinking before we ever think it. You know what choices we're planning to make before we ever make them. And in your love for us, so that you do not have to judge us, in staying true to your word and requiring the same from us, you have spoken lovingly to us and told us what we need to hear. Amen.